Welcome to today's reading of the Council Plus Nonpareil for December 26th, 2023. I'm your reader, John McPartland. Here's our first story. Uh, we have bald eagles begin stay at Lake Manawa. Um, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, winter is the best time to observe bald eagles in Iowa, where they migrate from northern states and Canada to find food. The bald eagles usually begin arriving in Iowa around September and become more numerous through January. New Boho Boutique offers a variety of unique products. The owner of a new Council Bless Boutique describes her shop as electric and unique. I'm trying to create, create that Boho Boutique, the Boho look, Sherry Nordham said. Boho Chic is a fashion style that blends bohemian and hippie influences. Nordham's shop, Nard Naturals Boho Boutique, opened at 1010 South Main Street on Small Business Saturday in late November. She said that shoppers since then have been impressed. People have said it feels so good in here. Nordham sells unique, one-of-a-kind items, plus handmade items from 10 different local artists. In addition, there are private label items, handmade hemp products, and handmade essential oil blended body care. Diffusing bracelets and handmade gemstone jewelry can also be found. I make all my own products here, and a lot of the jewelry is made by me and my team, Nordham said. Among her collection are personally made aromatherapy products like roll-ons, body spray, and facial products. Nordham buys high-quality essential oils and blends them with organic carrier oils to create an aroma uniquely hers. Shoppers can choose from the various talented local artists. This one is done by a 10-year-old girl. Nordham said, holding up a pillow mask. You put it over your eyes to help you sleep. The lavender buds inside help you relax. Artwork, handmade candles, and fashion clothing are some of the other works of art here. I want to support local artists and make this a community effort, Nordham said. Her many hemp accessories uh, journey from far away. I import a lot of items from Nepal, she said. Hemp grown in the Himalayas is among the best in the world because of how it is grown. Hemp doesn't require pesticides or chemical fertilizers to grow. What's more, it's antibacterial and is biodegradable. Her hemp collection includes hats, handbags, bottle holders, crossbody bags, purses, and even children's bags. Among her available jewelry are handmade essential oil diffusing bracelets with lava beads and gemstones. Lava beads are porous, Nordham said. They absorb the essential oils on them and will give off an aroma. There are gemstone earrings and necklaces available for purchase. I also make keychains, she said. In the mood for some meditation, her vibrating, singing bowls offer the right note. It's warm and inviting, and you'll need to take your time to observe everything, Nordham said of her new venture, just south of the Harvester Loss. It's a hippie store but there's something for everybody. Now a story by David Golbitz. Board okays changes to Ag Exemption Ordinance. Pottawatomie County Supervisors approved changes related to an agricultural exemption during their Tuesday, December 19th meeting. The vote followed a presentation clarifying the purposes and eligibility of the exemption by Pottawatomie County Planning and Development Director Matt Wyatt. The changes to Chapter 8 of the Pottawatomie County Code include amending language in the Agricultural Users 
exempt section by removing a 35-acre threshold for land to be considered primarily used for agricultural purposes, adding soil and water conservation to the primarily used for agricultural purposes section, and adding a definition of agricultural experiences. The amended code also provides a list of factors the county considers when determining whether land or structures are primarily used for agricultural purposes and a section that states that conditional or special use permits or special exemption and variances are not required for agricultural experiences on property of which the primary use is agricultural. After last week's public comments about the proposed code sections, kind of brought out some misconceptions about the ag exemption. And so I thought I would go over what an exemption is, the process that we go through for determination of it, how the appeals work, and give some examples of agricultural exemptions and experiences in Pottawatomie County. Simply put, the county's agricultural exemption ordinance exempts farms and farm building from county zoning while the land or buildings are used for agricultural allows agricultural in all county districts, and provides relief from setback distances. What the ag exemption does not do has been the subject of much consternation among some county residents, which the newly amended ordinance hopes to alleviate. The county will not issue a certificate of occupancy or completion, Wyant said. An ag exemption does not exempt farms from complying with state electrical codes and inspections, septic, well, and floodplain ordinances. Board Chairman Brian Shee asked Wyatt what a property owner would have to do to get a certificate of occupancy if the home or outbuilding was exempt under this ordinance. You would have to go to a private engineering firm and have them certify, Wyatt said. They could write up their own certification of occupancy that the house meets all the requirements of the state building code. Wyatt provided an example of landowner construction a building for a farm office and storage space and choosing to install a septic system designed for a small bathroom. If the landowner would then build a house around the office and storage space, they would now be in violation of the septic code and face penalties along with upgrading the system. From 2017 to 2023, only four out of 193 requests for an agricultural exemption have been denied by the county. Wyatt stressed that while the county does not require an application to receive an agricultural exemption, it does offer a voluntary form to help the county make a determination about whether the structure is primarily adapted for use for agricultural purposes, as it states in the ordinance. Wyant cited a case that went before the Iowa Supreme Court, Lang versus Lynn County, in which the course wrote, We recognize that small-scale agricultural production should not be discouraged. However, at some point, a line has to be drawn to determine what qualifies under the statute as agricultural use and what is more akin to a rural acreage. The county's requirement is to offer a determination, Wyatt said. That responsibility falls on the director of planning. While agricultural experiences have been part of Pottawatomie County for years, the practice has now not been codified until now. Agricultural experiences are now defined as any agricultural-related activity as a secondary use in conjunction with agricultural production on a farm which activity is open to the public with the intended of purpose of promoting or educating the public about agricultural, agricultural practices, agricultural activities, or agricultural products. 
The planning department has a long history of working with landowners on events like this, Wyant said. In the past, some conditional use permits were granted for things like goat yoga, Ditmar's Bloom Festival, and bluegrass concert series, but others like Karsten's Farm Days and seed demonstrations have never needed a permit to happen. We have always had property owners conducting activities like that in Pottawatomie County, and as part is what, and it is a part of what makes this place so great. For agricultural experiences that take place indoors, the building will require a permit and inspect it to ensure it meets state building codes, according to the state fire marshal's office. I do not see that as being a contentious issue, Wyatt said. It is a safety issue for the public and the property owner and special circumstances of volunteer fire and EMS services. We have several people offering ag experiences, and they go great as a nice outdoor activity to learn about ag, hands-on, and enjoy the beautiful county. The newly amended agricultural exemptions rules are currently available in the December 19th board meeting packet. The official Pottawatomie Pottawatomie County Code will be updated shortly. PACE opens doors to theater, orchestra area for students. Pottawatomie, Pottawatomie Arts, Culture, and Entertainment is offering free tickets to select theater and orchestra shows to high school students across the metropolitan area. The new student outreach program at the Hoff Family Arts and Cultural Center is funded by the Union's Pacific Community Ties Giving Program, according to the PACE news release. High schoolers and their chaperones can receive tickets to any Thursday night performance by the Chanticleer Theater and any performances by Canesville Symphony Orchestra through the program. While Pace sets ticket and class pricing near market levels for affordability, the cost can still pose a barrier for some families in our community. Pace CEO Dana Kane said in the release, Recognizing this, we collaborate with schools and nonprofits to provide tickets and scholarships aiming to making cultural experiences accessibility to everyone. The student outreach program builds on this concept, ensuring cost is not a barrier for high school students wanting to attend our community theater and orchestra shows. The initiative directly confronts the challenges of an aging audience and declining attendance in the performing arts by encouraging a passion for community theater and orchestra among youth in the community. Pace firmly believes that involving the next generation in cultural experiences can yield lifelong benefits, ultimately contributing to the vibrancy of our community, the organization, organization said in release. Teachers, parents, and guardians interested in bringing teens to Pace performances can find more information at paceart paceartsiowa.org backslash student outreach program or call the box office at 712-890-5601. Program assists 25 Council Bluffs homeowners. The 712 initiative Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs and TS Bank recently announced this year's recipients of AMP for Neighborhoods. The program assists Council Bluffs homeowners with complete curb appeal projects and home exterior improvements, according to a news release. Since the program's inception in 2021, over 75 homeowner projects have been assisted. Original funding came from several local businesses, and an anonymous donor gave the program a major boost. With the ongoing partnership and generosity of this donor, the AMP program continued into its third years. 
Residents were encouraged to nominate themselves or a neighbor with outdoor housing needs. Additionally, neighborhoods could apply for their own block initiatives. Project requests included landscaping, siding, sidewalks, windows, roofing, and exterior doors. In addition to curb appeal projects, the AMP program also collaborates with the Habitat Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs Home Repair Programming offerings, where after assessment, Habitat's construction crew may make arrangements for internal home repairs. This year, 83 applications were received and 25 projects were selected. Two of these homeowners included Brenda Gellitz and Sue Mice, who have both experienced various hardships the last several years. As part of the AMP program, Gellitz received a new driveway which provided great safety. After her husband passed away, she had to navigate homeownership decision making and the selection process on her own. The pride of owning this property brings great joy for her and her family. Galetz recalls a specific moment she received the phone call and good news of being selected for AMP. She was spending time with her family and over the moon in astonishment. It makes me want to cry just thinking about it, Galetz said in the release. I was so surprised and overwhelmed with gratitude. To commemorate the occasion, she hosted a big family cookout on the new driveway over Labor Day weekend. Her family enjoyed time together, sitting along the drive, playing cornhole games with their grandchildren, used sidewalk chalk up and down the driveway to decorate and celebrate. I just love my little home and am so appreciative and blessed, Galitz said. I was so worried about my friends and neighbors falling, and now I show them this new, smooth driveway to everyone I can. Nominated by her daughters, Mize received a new roof, new siding, and painted trim. This has renewed the curb appeal and salvaged further water issues. Mize inherited the house after her mom passed away in a tragic car accident. With the help of the AMP program, her childhood home has received several hefty repairs and allowed a reprieve in her financial burdens. The AMP program is so amazing. It's been such a great experience, and I can't say enough good things about it, Mai said in the release. I have to look twice when I pass by home. It's a totally new house. I am so glad they took a chance on me. I'm just delighted. The AMP program was created to help revitalize neighborhoods and positively transform the lives of individual homeowners. If you have any questions or more information, contact Sandra Drip at ctdrip at the 712initiative.org or call 712-396-2472. Iowa Western celebrates 2023 winter commencement. Abigail Birch of Gretna, Nebraska leads the commencement class in the ceremony turning of the tassels during Iowa Western Community College's commencement ceremony for students graduating with certificates, diplomas, and associate degrees this winter in Council Bluffs on Saturday, December 16, 2023. CDBG Projects Downtown Atlantic Revitalization The building located at 509 Chestnut Street is nearing completion of two one-bedroom upper-story apartments according to a news release from the Southwest Iowa Planning Council. Southwest Iowa Planning Council helped the building owner apply for the upper-story CDBG in fall 2021 and the project was awarded funding in 2022. The grant is awarded to the City of Atlantic and the owner of the subrecipient and the owner is the subrecipient 
and developer of the project. SWIPCO administers the grant with funds running through the city. The Upper Story Housing Project received $199,999 in CDBG funding with $243,209 in match funds provided by the owner. The units are nearing completion and are required to be rented to a low-moderate income tenant for a period of five years with maximum allowable rents. The Upper Story Housing Conversion Program is part of a federal initiative to provide more available and affordable housing in geographical areas of need. The program provides assistance for the conversion of existing downtown building space into new residential units. The building was one of several on Chestnut Street in downtown Atlantic that were assisted with the downtown facade program in 2020. Front facades were updated with a cost share of 25% from the owner, 25% from the city, and 50% from CDBG funds. Viridian Credit Union distributed $90,000 in grants to 24 organizations across Iowa and eastern Nebraska this month. The credit union awards successful financial future grants annually up to $5,000 each to nonprofit organizations who address barriers to financial stability. Financial literacy and employment readiness are vital to creating a successful financial future. It's important for us to support organizations who are offering these tools in our communities. Grant recipients in the Council Bluffs area included $3,000 for College Possible and $5,000 for Boys and Girls Club of the Midlands, with additional grants to Omaha organizations. CAF working to restore World, II, World War II era art aircraft. <laughs> The Great Plains Wing of the Commemorative Air Force is participating in an annual online giving campaign to restore a revolutionary World War II era aircraft to flying condition. The YO-55 Urkoop is a low-wing monoplane that first flew in 1937, according to a news release from the group. During World War II, Urkoops were used by the Civil Air Patrol to train pilots and to look offshore to spot German U-boats. In 1940, the Urkoop became the first aircraft type to be supplied with jet-assisted takeoff, a then-revolutionary way to propel an aircraft into the air using rockets. The all-volunteer Great Plains Wing hopes to raise $7,000 to help make its Urkoop 41 airworthy with the first major task being the restoration of the aircraft's wings from frame to fabric. Once the aircraft is airworthy, the group will use the aircraft to educate the public about this history of jet-assisted takeoff and the importance of our nation's jet technology development during World War II. So far, nearly a third of the money has been raised. Those interested in supporting this res restoration can learn more or pledge support at Fund razor.com slash Y-O-55-E-R-C-O-U-P-E. This restoration project is part of the Commemorative Air Force's annual 12 Planes of Christmas fundraising campaign, highlighting the efforts of different CAF units around the country to restore and maintain their vintage military aircraft. The campaign helps to raise funds and awareness of the organization's vast efforts 
to acquire, restore, maintain, and fly historic military aircraft. The CAF's fleet contains over 175 aircraft, aircraft and is 84% operational. USDA grants help rural communities in southwest Iowa. The U.S. Department of Agricultural Rural, rural Development announced earlier this month that a little over eight, oh, excuse me, a little over one million is to be awarded to 16 rural Iowa projects. City water plans, emergency response vehicles, and hospital technologies are all part of the critical infrastructure that underpins our lives here in Iowa, State Director Teresa Greenfield said in a news release. Among the $1 million in grants awarded is $22,000 for the City of Pisgah to create a water facility plan developed by engineers. This project will address water system conditions and performance and will include alternatives and recommendations to meet the rehabilitation needs of the entire water system, according to the release. This project will promote better water quality for residents of the rural Harrison County community. The city of Griswold in Cass County received a $7,100 grant to help purchase communication equipment. It will pay for voice pagers for the city's fire department personnel, which will streamline operations and promote public safety. The city of Anita will receive a $50,000 grant to help purchase an ambulance. The Montgomery County Memorial Hospital received $50,000 grant to help purchase medical Im imaging equipment for Villisca Medical Clinic. The new x-ray machine will allow for more accurate diagnosis and save patient travel time. Iowa Finance Authority distributes over $11 million for housing. The Iowa Finance Authority recently awarded more than $11.2 million in grants to 26 local housing trust funds to support housing initiatives. The grant awards are made available through the Local Housing Trust Fund Program and are expected to assist 2,824 families, according to a news release. Pottawatomie County Housing Trust Fund received $341,367, while the Southwest Iowa Housing Trust Fund, serving Cass, Fremont, Harrison, Mills, Montgomery, Page, and Shelby Counties, received $404,000. The 2024 Local Housing Trust Fund awards represent the larger, largest annual amounts with the largest projects impact allocated through the program since inception. Today's awards will support housing initiatives that will ensure that nearly 3,000 families will have the ability to work, live, and thrive in our communities. The grant funds will support a range of initiatives aimed at developing or preserving housing for low-income households across the spectrum of housing needs. This includes the development and preservation of housing, infrastructure development, transitional housing, assistance for homeless individuals, rental assistance, homeownership support, and bolstering the capacity of local housing organizations and other efforts that directly address local housing needs. Okay, now we're gonna to turn to the opinion page. Uh, we have, what do we really mean by affordable housing from Froma Harup? It's being said by conservatives and liberals, America faces a crisis of affordable housing, and the way out of it is to build more houses. Wouldn't it make more sense to first understand the extent of the problem? 
Real estate interests have sucked in advocates for the poor in their Yes in My Backyard campaigns. Their mission is often to bulldoze through zoning laws that ensure a neighborhood's quality of life. Many residents in America's homeless encamps can't afford anything. New units might provide rent relief for some working-class tenants down on their luck. Others have problems that go beyond matters of supply and demand. Yes, in my backyard, schemes can get pretty outrageous. A developer in New York City recently punched through local zoning laws to build an 80-story billionaire skyscraper near Manhattan's stayed Sutton Place. The area area was already full of 20-story apartment buildings, but this guy got permission to break through the height limits in part by offering to create some affordable apartments, which happened to be miles away in Queens. In the meantime, he displaced about 80 families, most of whom lived in the old walk-ups that actually did provide housing at working-class rents. Often gone, too, on such projects are the little street-level shops, the florists, the shoe repairs, which preserve a sense of place. Conservatives frequently tout Houston as a model for affordable housing, crediting its lax zoning laws. The larger reason is that Houston is surrounded by Texas. It can spread into the prairies and gently rolling hills. San Francisco is surrounded on three sides by water. What happens in this country when people feel priced out of neighborhoods is that they create new neighborhoods. High rents in Manhattan sent younger workers into neglected parts of Brooklyn that have since been revived. Gen Z, meanwhile, is reportedly looking at smaller cities where they can find more space at less cost. The destinations include Oklahoma City, Birmingham, Alabama, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Louisville, Kentucky. That trend should take pressure off the very expensive big big cities while breathing new life into some pleasant metros with fine housing stock places that earlier generations had bypassed. In the suburbs, single-family homes have been built on large lots originally intended to keep out poorer people. In some zoning rules that forbid duplexes, which are two-family houses, make little sense. Converting a garage into a granny apartment shouldn't be a problem. Good arguments can be made for filling in some low-density areas, especially near public transportation. But it does not follow that suburbs must submit to any new tower that destroys the small-town feel of their downtowns. Building booms can destroy the historic structures that make a place special. This is happening all over the world. In Cairo, for example, working-class neighborhoods are being bodozed and replaced by concrete high-rises. If you are being invaded, all what you care about is your monuments, your trees, your history, and your culture, said Mandu Saka, an Egyptian architect and urbanist. And now it's all being destroyed without any reason, without any explanation. Back in the U.S. housing market, rent increases have moderated of late, to the point where economists, economics predict housing should soon bring the inflation numbers down. Falling interest rates are lowering the cost of buying a new house. New construction and incentives for some owners to fix up old spaces are indeed adding supply. So let's not level neighborhoods in the interest of massive projects. 
Some ways to address the cost of housing will involve private decisions. Some may involve public subsidies. They certainly shouldn't require handling our main streets to the real estate barons. Our culture of control rejects suffering and brokenness. It would take a hard, hard person, especially one who is pro-life, to look at the plight of Kate Cox with no sympathy. Cox is the Dallas woman who became the poster child for the abortion rights movement in Texas when she challenged the state's abortion law seeking to terminate a pregnancy after receiving a devastating fetal diagnosis. Her story is heart-wrenching and yet not all unique. Cox entered a routine obstetrics appointment, excited to see the burgeoning life within her on the ultrasound screen. She left sick with the realization that the child she was carrying would not be with her for long. Like so many, like so many women, I can relate. During the ninth week of my third pregnancy, I saw on the ultrasound screen the image of my child at only six, six weeks' development. A flickering dot at its center suggested a heartbeat, cause for hope. But I knew what a baby at nine weeks' gestation looks like. This was not it. The doctor insisted I had miscalculated my cycle, that I should return in two weeks for another look. But I knew then I would not meet my baby this side of heaven. Two weeks later, delirious from blood loss after hemorrhaging during my miscarriage, I asked the emergency room doctor attending me, will I lose my uterus? No, she reassured me. Still, I remember being warned before entering surgery that uteration, uterine perf perf perforation was possible. Pregnancy is a beautiful and wholly natural state of being. Even in ideal circumstances, it is not without risk. Tolerance for acceptable risk is what's truly at the heart of the case involving Cox and her challenge to the Texas abortion statute. Her complaint seeking legal cover to abort her child describes how she came to learn that her child almost certainly had trisomy 18, a condition that would probably lead to her child's premature death either in utero or shortly thereafter. Cox understandably was shattered at the prospect of the prolonged suffering she and her child might face. Still, her child's diagnosis, while tragic, had no direct impact on her health. Her pregnancy was complicated by other immutable circumstances. Her previous cesarean sections, which always increased the risk of uterine rupture during indication or natural birth. Inducing pregnancy early in the case of a stillbirth would further compound the risk of complications. So too with a third C-section if it came to that. Her desire to end her child's life in such cases probably would not. And so Cox's attorneys argued that in light of this blighted pregnancy, this ruined child, any risk to her future health and fertility was not acceptable to bear. Why risk the prospect of losing your fertility for a dead child, or worse, for finally disabled one? Our society would seem to agree with that assessment. That may seem stark and overly harsh condemnation of Cox's decision-making process, which I have little doubt was difficult and fraught, was meant to be. Cox is a product of the culture in which we all live, one that wants to avoid suffering and exert maximum control over our individual circumstances. It's no surprise that most of our today's social movements are framed around the prime premissesy of the individual, our rights and autonomy. But suffering is part of life. It's most assuredly part of motherhood. The notion that we, as mothers, have agency over the circumstances of our pregnancies, births, and even our children is folly. We don't. We just along for the ride. 
Our calling is to carry our children through it. Sitting in an exam room, days after my miscarriage, I asked my doctor the question of all grieving mothers. Why did this happen? Your, your baby probably had some sort of development problem. Trisomy 18, perhaps Down syndrome, the doctor said. She wouldn't have survived. It was just as well. I was struck by the reply. I would have gladly carried that child if that was the suffering I was intended to endure. I don't say that flippantly. In the wake of Cox's case, many are calling for clarification in the law. Some are berating pro-lifers for their apparent heartlessness. Others are laminating the latest political blow this case has dealt to the anti-abortion cause. But the pro-life movement doesn't have political problem. It has a cultural one. Until we transform our collective view of suffering and sacrifice and our notion of life and love, we will never win. We will continue to suffer. This was an opinion by Cynthia Allen, who is a columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. You are listening to the Council of Blessed Nonparel and IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Services for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John McPartland. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS programs, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Now it's time for obituaries. The first one we have today is Virginia R. Brenneman. It is with heavy hearts that we announce the passing of our beloved matriarch, Virginia Ruth Newman Brenneman, at the age of 104. Virginia left us quietly on December 18, 2023, surrounded by family at her longtime home. Virginia was born December 30, 1918, the eldest daughter of Walter Newman Sr. and Pearl M. Newman. She was a lifetime resident of Council Bluffs, except for a brief time in the 1930s, when her family moved the family to California. She was a 1936 graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School, where she met and fell in love with classmate Robert Bob Brenneman. Virginia and Bob married on February 4, 1939, and built a family and relationship that were the envy of many. Virginia and Bob were together until his passing on December 23, 1998. Virginia and Bob had four children, R. Michael of Omaha, Anne-Marie Larson of Council Plus, Mark Denise of Chandler, Arizona. Her youngest daughter, Denise O'Toole of Council Plus, passed away in 2014. Virginia is survived by her children, son-in-law, Dennis O'Toole of Council Plus, 26 grandchildren and their spouses, 32 great-grandchildren and their spouses, 19 great-great-grandchildren, as, as, as well as many nieces and nephews and scores of friends. Virginia was preceded in death by her husband, parents, seven brothers and sisters, and son-in-law, G. Larry Larson. Active in the community, Virginia was known for her involvement with the St. Albert Schools, the Council Bluffs Public Library, and numerous other civic and philanthropic Recognized for her love of books, Virginia will be remembered by generations of school children for her time spent in their classrooms, reading to them. No one visited ever left, no one who visited ever left as a stranger. She was a gracious hostess, a phenomenal entertainer, 
a world-class Jeep driver, a wrangler of wayward children, and a ratted intellectual conversing on local and world affairs until the end of her life. Please join us for the rosary beginning at 5 p.m. Friday, December 29th at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home, 545 Willow Avenue, Counts Bluffs, followed by a visitation until 7 p.m. Funeral Mass will be held at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, 4 Valley View Drive, Counts Bluffs, at 10 a.m. Saturday, December 30th. This would have been Virginia's birthday. Virginia will be laid to rest beside her greatest love, our patriarch and wagon master, Robert Brenneman, in Walnut Hills Cemetery. A lunch will follow at St. Patrick's Parish Hall. Memorials are suggested to the St. Albert Brenneman O'Toole Scholarship Fund, Friends of the Council Bus Library, or St. Patrick's Catholic Church. If I don't see you soon, I will see you in heaven. Virginia Brenneman, December 2023. And then we have uh, Deborah S. Clevenger. Deborah S. Clevenger, age 73, passed away on December 18, 2023. She was born July 1, 1950, to the late Richard and Rose Milner. In addition to her parents, Deborah was preceded in death by her brother, Richard Milner. She is survived by her husband, Daryl Clevenger, sister Margaret Pappas of Omaha, Nebraska, and brother John of Council Bluss. Per her wishes, Deborah has been cremated and no services will be held. And now back to some news. County Veterans Office runs smoothly. With a little over a year in charge of the Pottawatomie County Veterans Service Office under her belt, Administrator Peggy Becker has things running smoothly. Her success should come as no surprise given her 23 years of experience working with veterans. Over the years, this is just, it's just something that gets in your blood, Becker told the nonpareil. You can't not do it once You, if you're going to do it right. Let's put it that way. While not a veteran herself, Becker grew up surrounded by them. Her grandfather served in World War I, and her father and his five brothers uh, all served in World War II. Her brother-in-law is retired from the U.S. Navy. I've got a lot of people looking over my shoulder, let's put it that way, Becker said. You don't have to be a veteran to be patriotic, you know. That's just, that's how you feel for your country. More than 6,300 veterans live in Pottawatomie County, but not all of them take advantage of what the VSO can do for them. Only 2,100 are getting benefits, Becker said. We want to find those other 4,000 veterans. There are a number of reasons why veterans eligible for benefits don't accept them, said Becker. Some veterans might not even know that they're eligible or what they could receive. I think a lot of them are still rural, said Becker. A lot of them don't know that they may qualify for benefits because at one time, one point in time, a peacetime veteran did not qualify for any benefits, but they've changed the laws. It wasn't until the mid-1960s that peacetime veterans were able to collect the same benefits as wartime brethren. Becker mentioned contacting the Western Iowa Development Association to see if the rural nonprofit can help put veterans in the eastern part of the county in touch with the VSO. The VSO does visit the Avoca Courthouse twice a month on every other Wednesday to assist veterans who may be unable to travel to the main office in Council Plus. The other two Wednesdays each month, the VSO has a satellite office in Carter Lake. Another reason 
more veterans don't seek assistance is that they don't think that they've earned it. The main problem with that thinking is that if veterans aren't taking advantage of the benefits available to them, the funding for the department shrinks. Something we hear a lot is, give it to the other guy. He needs it worse than I do. But the more people that get benefits from the VA, the more people that use the VA hospital, the more funding they get. It's just like any other agency. The more people that use it, the more funding it gets. If people aren't using it, then there's the need's not there, so they don't get the funding. That being said, the number of veterans connecting with the VSO has been inching upward over the last few years. From 2,118 in 2021 to 2,134 in 2022. If things, t- if things continue to go as they are, you'll see the difference in monthly numbers, Becker said. We've slowly increased, increased, increased. Becker would also like veterans to think of the VA not as something they have to do, but as something they've earned. Not, oh, I'm retiring, it's something I have to do, she said. We're not a have to. The county office, formerly known as Veterans Affairs, changed its name in 2022 in order to avoid being confused with the federal VA system. I guess you could say that the straw that broke the camel's back was, we had a lady bring her husband in one time that had hit his hand with a saw, and she wanted emergency care, and we're not the VA. Becker said, we're not in any way medical. In choosing a new name, the county decided to keep it simple. We're called caseworkers locally, but across the nation we're called veteran service officers. And everybody knows what a VSO is. So that's where the name came from. Lately, Becker said that the VSO is starting to see veterans from the Persian Gulf War of the early 1990s. They're getting into their 50s. They're looking more towards retirement as far as, okay, what can the VA offer me? A lot of it is medical care insurance. That's usually what starts is, what can I get medically? And then it snowballs into compensation benefits, that type of stuff. For more information about the Pottawatomie County Veterans Service Office, visit pottcounty.com space iowa.gov backslash departments slash veterans affairs or call 712-378-5797 reflecting on a successful year at midlands humane society this is by maria garcia as we wrap up 2023 we are reflecting on the animals saved people served and goals accomplished this year with our organization We are extremely thankful for our staff, volunteers, and supporters who continue to believe in our mission to protect and nurture companion animals and enrich the lives of people who love them. Year to date, there have been over 1,870 animals adopted into their new loving homes. This includes 1,083 cats and kittens, 698 dogs, puppies, and nearly 100 small critters, rabbits, guinea pigs, and other pocket pets. We are also proud to share that we have returned over 360 lost pets to their owners and have transferred more than 80 animals to the wonderful rescues that we partner with. Since welcoming Elizabeth Farrington to the team in July of 2022, MHS now proudly performs all adoption preparation in-house, including vaccinations, deworming, 
veterinarian-directed screenings for infectious diseases, spay neuter, and all other warranted medical and surgical procedures. This year, MHS has already completed more than 1,600 surgeries, while approximately 87% of them were spay-neuters for dogs and cats. There is an ever-growing population of animals coming into the shelter that require additional surgical procedures. We have seen a drastic reduction in an animal's length of stay and are thankful to have the ability to promptly treat a medical, immediate medical services. Our vital volunteer program continues to grow and we are thrilled to expand available opportunities for volunteering with an updated fostering license allowing 80 active foster homes. There were 435 animals that were fostered prior to adoption this year. We are very excited to continue our Grow Foster program to be able to get more animals into a home environment while they wait for their ever forever home. We regularly get animals that are confiscated by City of Council Bluffs or Pottawatomie County Animal Control, but rarely do we have two in one day. On July 20th, we received 73 dogs and a cat from two homes within Council Bluffs. After several weeks of medical attention and taste, intense grooming, and a lot of TLC, all animals were adopted into loving homes. These types of situations stretch our resources, but also remind us how lucky we are to have a supportive community and strong partnerships that help us weather the storms. As the holiday season comes to an end, we are asking you to consider continuing your support with a tax-deductible contribution to our Bark Friday campaign, which ends December 30th. This year-end fundraiser allows us to continue providing exceptional daily care for the homeless pets that come to MHS, ensuring that they are both healthy and happy when finding their ever forever homes. Donations can be made online at midlandshumanesociety.org or mail delivered to MHS at 1020 Railroad Avenue, Council Bluffs, Iowa, 51503. If you have any questions, please contact Mariah Garcia, Director of Operations and Events at 712-396-2264. Nebraska might partner with Iowa's Prescription Drug Donation Program. One Nebraska lawmaker's efforts to increase recycling have led her to explore an Iowa program to donate and reuse prescription drugs and tackle rising medication costs. Freshman State Senator Jana Hughes of Seward is looking to join forces with Iowa nonprofit SafeNet RX, which collects, inspects, and distributes non-expired and safe medications to patients at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. SafeNet RX receives donations from more than 200 facilities and individuals, including all 50 states including at least one Nebraska pharmacy in Gretna. However, SafeNet RX distributes medicine only within Iowa, and Nebraska would need to change its laws to allow reciprocal distribution. The more options they have to get it back out the door, the better, Hughes said. It's sickening to destroy good medication. The nonprofit has been looking to expand medic medication distribution to other states in addition to, to Nebraska, according to CEO John Rossman, through the Cornhusker State, is a logical partner due to proximity and similarities in geography and demographics. 
Most Nebraska pharmacies participate in a drug disposal program that collects and ships drugs to be destroyed. According to Nebraska Pharmacist Association, the program is funded by nearly $300,000 in state appropriations and $700,000 from Nebraska Environmental Trust over three years. The program seeks to prevent drugs from going into landfills or water systems and includes all unused drugs, including non-expired meds. It's just sickening that we are destroying perfectly good medications, Hughes said. Hughes has been examining ways to increase recycling in general, and donated medication would be an extension of those efforts, she said. She envisions pharmacies having one bend for redistribution and another for destruction, similar to how collection efforts work for trash and recycling. Rossman said his nonprofit is designed to address two pervasive problems, patient affordability and pharmaceutical waste. About 75% of unused medication accumulates in long-term care and institutional settings, he explained, and it only makes sense to tap into those sources. Since the drug repository program began began in 2007, it has grown to be the largest in the nation as has been supported by both Republican and Democrats alike. It's a problem that is very pragmatic, and it's a solution that Midwesterners can see as being a very logical solution, Rosman said. SafeNet Rx has served more than 134,000 patients, and it has collected and inspected and made available about $105 million in donated medicine through its dispensing network, according to the organization's most recent annual report. With a budget of roughly $1 million, SafeNetRx annually brings in $25 million to $30 million in donated medicine. The nonprofit returns $12 million to $15 million to patients at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. The return is massive. The impact on patients' lives is massive, Rossman says. And the opportunity to join forces and create something really remarkable that our Midwest can be proud of that's not lost on us as well. SafeNet RX has multiple layers of inspections and checks donations to see whether they are sealed in tamper-evident packaging, non-expired, and non-controlled substances. Pharmacists also conform, confirm that medication do not require refrigeration or show no signs of tampering or deterioration. To date, according to SafeNet RX, there have been zero patient safety issues. Nebraska pharmacists could have immediate access to SafeNet Rx's real-time inventory for their patients, Rossman said, as soon as it's legal. Early in the 2023 legislative sessions, one of Hughes' const- constituents in York encouraged her to look at SafeNet Rx, and she and her staff were able to get the ball rolling after the session. Hughes, her legislative ma- aide, Matt Howell, State Senator Merv Reap of Roston, Matthew Schaefer of Mueller-Roback, and Harley Pertzborn and Amy Holman with the Nebraska Pharmacy Association toured SafeNet Rx in Grimes, Iowa on October 30th. Iowa Representative John Forbes, Democrat from Urbandale, who was a pharmacist, joined as well. During the tour, the group saw $20 million worth of inventory 
which Reap said has some impact and size that could benefit Nebraska. Schaefer said he represents a number of healthcare entities that approve of the drug donation idea. Hughes described a situation where a patient who can't afford meds may eventually land in the emergency room, a more expensive path of care. Reap, a former hospital administrator, said some patients may take daily meds every other day in hopes of extending the prescription, though this can have major implications on a patient's entire health. It's not going to be a profitable thing, Rape said. It's just going to fill the needs of some people. Next year's likely legislation could be referred to the Legislature's Health and Human Services Committee, of which Reap is a member. If it's available and it's all clean and neat and orderly and legal and everything else, it's a blessing to have it to get to those people that, in fact, need it. Pertzborn, an executive fellow for the Nebraska Pharmacists Association and an Iowa native who previously volunteered for SafeNet Rx, said patients must adhere to the requirements of their medication, such as when they should be taken. She graduated from Iowa's Drake University in May and is now a Nebraska pharmacist. It's just so positive and everybody's so passionate about it and the patients say help. They have some of the best stories and I want to bring that to Nebraska. The partnership could provide cost savings for the state, both Pertzborn and Hughes said, and help shore up health care gaps. Pertzborn said a partnership could be a best-case scenario. There's just not a better feeling than helping your patient and getting them the meds they need and making sure they're happy with their health care. At the end of the day, the only thing that's happening is we're just helping more Nebraska patients. Hughes said she and her staff are finalizing details for legislation for a partnership to at little or no cost to the state. This could include some already appropriated drug destruction funds or grants. Well, that brings us to the end of the reading of the Council Plus Nonpareil. I'm your reader, John McPartland. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the IRA Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.